actually in some ways harmonizing there. That was, that was pretty awesome, wasn't it? Wow, thank you. Well, again, it's a privilege to be able to share with you the Word of God this afternoon. If you would, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We were there a few weeks ago, and we chose for a topic to preach on the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it, it is an exclusive gospel. There's no other truth, there's no other good news, there's no other word that is as true and as powerful as the gospel of Jesus Christ that we find actually in the word of God. When we were together the last time when I had the privilege of preaching, we sort of concluded that the Apostle Paul here shared basically three I am's that he was committed to because of, again, embracing and understanding just how inclusive the gospel is. As much as we know that Christ is exclusively the only way to God, John 14, 6 makes that clear. Jesus said, I am the way, there's the definite article, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That's an exclusive claim. He didn't say he was one of many ways or one of many truths or one of many lives. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So therefore, there is only one exclusive gospel that explains that truth about Christ. And of course, the gospel is everything that God has said in his word that pertains to Jesus Christ. And so Paul, very boldly and very clearly, but yet with true humility, sums up why he preached the gospel the way he did, because obviously he knew it was an exclusive gospel. It is the only gospel, it's the only truth that can be preached and bring salvation to sinful man and redeem him and reconcile him to God. So he said in verse 14, as a result of, again, believing and preaching the exclusivity of the gospel, he says, I'm under obligation both to the Greek and to the barbarian, both to the wise and to the foolish. In other words, uh, I'm in debt. I am obligated to do this. That is to say that when you truly believe and embrace this gospel that's exclusively the gospel, we're all ob are obligated to make sure we make this known. And this is just not reserved for a select few. The pastor or the teacher or whoever the leader might be in the church, this is without a doubt for every person that names the name of Christ. We are obligated, we are in debt to share this exclusive gospel. Also, Paul said there in verse, uh, verse 15, so for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel. He goes from I am obligated or I'm a debtor, but I'm eager. In other words, this was literally a motivation for Paul. This was actually something that stimulated his life and motivated him in regards to the exclusivity of the gospel. Again, we mentioned this verse the last time. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, where Paul again says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast for, 
from under compulsion. He says, listen, I don't really have anything to say. My opinion doesn't mean anything. Uh, what I've got to say doesn't really have any true uh, meaning or significance. He says, but for me, I preach the gospel. Preach there is, again, caruso, which means to herald or to proclaim. This is what I'm called to do. I preach, I herald, I proclaim the gospel, the good news, the truth of what God has said in his word about Christ. And he says, I have nothing to boast of. It's not about me. You know, you know, as John MacArthur says so many times, you know you have a problem with preachers when they are the hero in their narratives. In other words, when they preach more about themselves than they do the exclusivity of Christ and the gospel, you know that that is surely an issue. So he says, but I'm under compulsion. I'm compelled to do this. I'm moved. I'm compelled to do this. He says, for woe is me, woe is me if I don't preach, if I don't caruso, if I don't herald, if I don't proclaim this gospel. Therefore, I'm eager. That should be the heart of every one of us. It should be that every day that God would grace you to wake up, including myself, it should be foremost in your mind, God, would you afford me an opportunity today to share this gospel with someone? Would you, God, open a door of opportunity and grant me the boldness and the confidence to share this gospel that I'm eager to share? Not only am I in debt, not only am I under obligation to do so, but I'm eager to do so. And then last, he said in verse 16, for I'm not ashamed. It goes from I'm obligated, I'm in debt, I'm eager, and I'm not ashamed. I don't know why many times we as believers find ourselves maybe falling back from being bold when it comes to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said, because it's a, an exclusive gospel, I'm obligated, I'm eager, and I'm not ashamed of it. It's exclusive. It's the word of God. It's the truth. So, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, verse 16, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So without a doubt, Paul's supreme mission or passion was to see men saved. He cared nothing for personal comfort, popularity, or reputation. Why? Because he indeed believed and preached the exclusivity of the gospel. Paul offered no compromise of the gospel because he knew it's the only power available that can indeed change lives for eternity. The word of God. And then again, we mentioned this just for review. One more time there, there is four words that are important to understand in verse 16 in regards to not being ashamed of the gospel. And again, because he believed and again stood strongly upon the exclusivity of the gospel and he was not ashamed of that gospel, he realized that it was the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So power there again is a dunamis. It's, it's a word where we get our English word, dynamite. It is to say that the exclusivity of the gospel carries with it the unlimited, all the power, all the omnipotence of God. God's power alone is sufficient to save men from sin and give them the gift of eternal life. 
then the word salvation, soterion, is a word that actually means deliverance or preservation. With that power, again, comes the salvation. The most preeminent manifestation of God's power, his sovereignty, his glory, is that of bringing men to salvation by transforming their lives and giving them eternal life through Christ. So there's the power, there's the salvation, but then there's the word believe. The third word regarding the exclusivity of the gospel is the word believe. In fact, it's the same Greek word for faith, which is pistuo, which means to have faith or to trust and simply believe. So it involves that. You have the power, you have the soteria, uh, the, the deliverance, the the preservation, the gospel, the power uh, to those that believe, and it brings salvation to everyone who believes. What is interesting here is this word believe carries with it uh, the present participle, which means to everyone believing, to everyone believing. Same thoughts in John 3.16, where it says, For God's love the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes or to everyone believing who continue believes, would indeed have eternal life. And then the word righteousness there is a key word. And it's a word that speaks of being obviously in right standing with God. Notice it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to those that believe. And again, uh, this word here in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Righteousness is a key word. Actually, it's used some 35 times in Romans. And of course, faith activates the divine power that brings the salvation. And in that powerful action, the righteousness of God is revealed. How do we know that? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, verse 17 is a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. It's verse 17, but verse 21 says, He became sin who knew no sin, that we might be made righteous with his righteousness. So all that is to say that the, exclusivity, the, exclus the exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ alone is totally, completely sufficient that by it alone is the power, that is the power to convict. I want to talk about that just a little bit. The word convict it's really a judicial term. And when you think about convict, it refers to the judicial act of indicting one who has broken the law with a view toward sentencing that person. So the idea of conviction pictures a courtroom scene in which the guilty are accused before a judge and justly condemned. So it is with the ministry of the word of God when preached in its power and in its truth through the Holy Spirit. That is the exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ. The proclamation of that gospel brings the necessary supernatural power of conviction to the guilty soul that the need for salvation is revealed at that point and made known to the condemned heart. And they know and realize through that truth by the work of the Holy Spirit, that they desperately need that truth concerning Christ. 
We read while ago, or Pastor Mark read it while ago, a verse that's in Hebrews 4.12. We know what it says, for the word of God is alive and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both the joints and the marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So right here in this text of Hebrews 4.12, the Bible claims to be alive. It claims to be alive. Understanding the exclusivity of the gospel is understanding that that gospel is the word of God and therefore that word is alive. It's the living word of God. It's alive. And meaning in its full of life, it means it's full of life, it's full of divine life, supernatural life, it's the very life of God himself. The truth of the matter is, every other book that we read is really a dead book, a lifeless book, a book that's void of power, but not the word of God, not the word of God. It alone is alive, it's always relevant, is always powerful, is always reliable, and it's always true. I love what Martin Luther said, and I quote him. He says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold on me. So that Bible, that word, that exclusive truth of the gospel is alive, but it's also active, alive and active. In fact, this is the same Greek word for which we draw our English word energy, energy, energetic. When it comes to the exclusivity of the gospel and it's proclaimed, it's always energetic. It's always working. It is always accomplishing God's own purposes. Isaiah 55, 11 says, and God says, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It will not return to me void but it will accomplish what I please and it will prosper in the place where I send it. God's word proclaimed never returns to God empty or void or useless without power. It always, God's word proclaimed, the exclusive gospel proclaimed always, always accomplishes what God intends for it to accomplish. So in other words, again, the word of God, the sufficient gospel is always capable to fulfill God's eternal purposes on the earth. And that word of God is likened to, as the writer of Hebrews says here in chapter 4, verse 12, a two-edged sword, a two-edged sword. It is, a incredible, it is incredibly sharp and is able to cut deeply into the human soul. Two-edged sword has the ability to cut both ways. That Paul identified the word of God as the sword of the spirit in Ephesians 6 verse 17. The sword of the spirit. In fact, Charles Spurgeon loved to call the Bible a divine dagger. A divine dagger. He said, and I quote, It is all edge, has no blunt side. When proclaimed, the Bible does not merely inflict surface scrapes or flesh wounds, rather... The word of God penetrates the outward facade of a person's life and cuts all the way to the joints and the marrow. And thus the Bible is able to reveal the depths of man's inward depravity and need for saving grace. Spurgeon goes on to say no worldly message or conventional wisdom can do this. 
end of quote. And then the tag onto that John Calvin wrote, I love what he says, there is nothing so hard or firm in a man, nothing so deeply hidden that the efficacy of the word of God does not penetrate through when properly handled and proclaimed. The word of God through the Holy Spirit is the most powerful cutting instrument known to man. He says it is a sharp scalpel that is able to slash into the human heart, convicting it of sin and exposing its human depravity. End of quote. I like this one little thought that Spurgeon says, why preaching anything else to reveal one's true need for Christ? Why would I preach anything else? If it's an exclusive gospel, if it's an inerrant gospel, if it's an infallible gospel, if it is a, an authoritative gospel, why would I resort to any other means to see anyone come to saving grace and come to, to the true nature of saving faith with Christ apart from that truth? So not only does that exclusive gospel have the power to convict, but it also has the power to convert. The power to convert. The word of God not only has the power to convict, it alone possesses the power to convert. Here's a PowerPoint that is so important. No one, no one, no one can be saved apart from hearing and obeying the exclusive, the exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ. What did Paul say in Romans 10, 17? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing the word pertaining to Christ. The message of the Bible is the power of God for salvation. Even Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 23, For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding word of God. Word there is logos. Logos is the sum total of everything that God says that's revealed in Scripture. The sum total of all that he is revealed in Scripture. And Peter is saying that you were not born again, you were not born from above by anything that was perishable, but the seed was the seed of truth, the word of God, that's an imperishable seed, and it is the living and the abiding word of God. It means that it's an imperishable seed, it's God's word, and it contains divine life divine life so it's by the sovereign operation of the holy spirit holy spirit is involved in this the holy spirit is involved in the proclamation of the exclusivity of christ the gospel the truth about christ that is the bible it is alone able to generate the new birth in those who are spiritually dead it can literally make a dead person come alive literally this simply means when the seed of the word is sown into the human heart that is prepared by the Holy Spirit, it will bring forth new life. The exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ does actually, it does actually impart supernatural life. The life that makes God what he is, that Zoe life, Z-O-E, Zoe life, that abundant life he gives is supernatural. It's God's life. It's the life that makes God what he is. It's eternal life. 
it's the very life of God lodged inside the, the, the actual heart of the person who believes and receives that impartation of God's supernatural life inside of them. This is precisely what happened on the day of Pentecost, did it not? After the coming of the Holy Spirit, Peter addressed the thousands who gathered that day by preaching the word of God to them in Acts 2, verse 14 through verse 36. In fact, this was the first Christian sermon. First sermon, post-resurrection, post-ascension. Peter preaches it. And this is what actually thrusts forth the church, the proclamation of the truth. The exclusivity of the gospel. And everywhere they went, whether it's Peter, John, Paul, Silas, any of them, they were constantly under the attack and severe persecution of those who did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for doing what? Preaching an exclusive gospel. Folks, listen. There's no room for any compromise here. There's no room for anything that would take away from this or add to this that has not been said that all we have to do is just say what God says, preach what He says, declare what Christ says, depend on the Holy Spirit to convert sinners because the gospel is designed to do that. It's designed to do that. And again, this message was the first Christian message at the beginning of the church. The message was a powerful presentation of the word, and it came with soul-saving efficacy. What happened? What happened when the exclusive gospel was presented? Scripture says the people were pierced to the heart. What pierced them? Sort of sounds like Hebrews 4.12. Sort of sounds like Ephesians 6.17. There's, there's a knife here. There's a sword here. It says their hearts were pierced. That word that's alive and energetic and active, that two-edged sword is what actually pierced their heart. It was as though they were stabbed as with a knife and they cried out, what shall we do? What shall we do? Peter responded, repent and be saved from this perverse generation. 3,000 souls came to Christ. 3,000. Right here is a perfect example of an all-sufficient, exclusive gospel of Christ. The power to convert. Look, there was no entertainment. There was no fog machines. There was no, there was no uh, different colored lights. There was, there was no... Um, Painting the ceiling black, bringing all the house lights down to where it's dark, and you got all the lights on the stage, and it seems that the emphasis here is on the person that's leading you. You know, uh, it's almost like you can't really grow a church and be successful today unless you have tight jeans and a smoke screen, a smoke machine, and a and a giant screen. You got to have those things. Are are you not going to grow the church? It's not going to be blessed. It's not going to be successful. One thing is for sure, there was no entertainment there when Peter preached. There was nothing that was entertaining. It was just exposition. 
He preached this message from the Old Testament. He preached the exclusivity of Christ. They knew. They knew firsthand that the only thing that could convict and convert a person is to preach the gospel. Paul said, I'm obligated to do this. I'm eager to do this, and I'm not ashamed of this. And you won't be if you believe that it's an exclusive gospel. Right here is a perfect example of the all-sufficient, exclusive gospel of Christ, the power to convert. The beauty of this gospel, too, is that it's an abiding gospel that converts. It is able to perform a lasting work never to be reversed. Never to be reversed. The conversion that the exclusive gospel produces is not a mere passing emotion. But what lasts for all eternity. We're talking about receiving life that's eternal. So not only does this gospel that's exclusive convict and convert, but it also conforms. It conforms. The exclusivity of the truth in Scripture alone has the power to conform the believer into the image of Jesus Christ. This is the sanctifying work of the Word, which sets apart all disciples from the defilements of the world and the pollution of one's sinful flesh unto God and His holiness. In fact, the Word of God cleanses the soul that receives it by faith. Did not Jesus say in John 15, 3, you're already clean, meaning pruned like a branch because of the word which I've spoken to you? Ephesians 5, 26, Paul said about the church, it is by the washing of water by the word that involves the conforming of the believer to Christ. Recently, I heard a powerful message by John MacArthur that he was preaching to the seminary out in Southern California, and he said something I never thought about before, and it just went off inside of me like a Roman candle. How many know what a Roman candle is? Anybody know what a Roman candle is? And this is what he said. He said, in the life of the believer, the most domineering thought you should have that literally obsesses your mind is your sanctification. Your conformity to Christ. Romans 8 says that it's the very eternal purpose of God and it's very much the will of God, the purpose of God and the intent of God that you and I be conformed to the image of Christ. So this gospel that's exclusively the gospel, the only truth that can convict the only truth that can actually uh, convert is also the only truth that can conform. Jesus even prayed in his high priestly prayer. He said in John 17, praying to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctify means to be set apart from the corrupting power of sin and to be separated unto personal purity 
and holiness. It is your sanctification. It's all a part of the process of being conformed to Christ. The gospel, the truth, the exclusive truth of God in his word is designed to do that. I remember years ago, right after I came to Saving Faith in Christ in 1975, it was about then that they came out with these Bibles called the Open Bible. And back in that day, you could only get it in the King James, Jimmy version. You know, it was only King James version back then. I sort of like the King James version. I like the these, the thus, the thous. I sort of get into that. I like that. But I remember as best as it could be, it was like a study Bible that gave you references and cross-reference to certain things and topics and basic doctrines in the Bible. But I can truthfully say, and I hope you understand my heart, I remember there was something about the Word of God. I just could not get enough of it. When I was in college, I was married at the time, working a full-time job, trying to keep grades, trying to work, trying to pay the bills, trying to get some sleep. I averaged maybe three or four hours sleep a night. We'd get up early and study, cram many times, go to school, go to college, take tests, pass the exams, and just hoping I would graduate. And I look back in hindsight, and all of it was such a blessing. I'm so thankful. But I can remember vividly that I loved the Bible so much. That first open Bible I got, I read it and studied it so much because it was in my heart, and there was such a compelling in my heart, I saw that God's eternal purpose was for us to be like Christ. And I understood that the best way I could be informed about that was through the truth that's exclusively the gospel and the truth given to me in the Word of God. And I literally read that Bible so much, it was falling apart. There was nobody back in the days that would remind them, so you'd have to go buy another Bible. And I heard Spurgeon say something, or read something about him. I didn't actually hear him, but uh, read this, that he's never seen anyone who had a Bible falling apart whose life was falling apart. I like that. This truth that Paul said, he's obligated, he's a debtor, he's eager, he's not ashamed to share, is a word that convicts, it converts, but it conforms all the way. There's a fourth thing about this gospel. And I must admit to you, you say, David, this is a strange time for confession of the soul, but I must admit to you, I've never had an original thought in my life. Never. Anything I've ever preached, said, or sang, or whatever, is something I've heard, something I've read, something I've studied. Whether it's commentaries, whether it's doing word studies, whether it's exegeting a text, whether it's being committed to hermeneutics and really finding out what God means by what he says so that when you stand behind the sacred desk, you're not shooting from the hip, you're not doing it from the seat of your pants, 
you feel with all your heart, you've given it your due diligence, you've studied, you've prepared, you refuse to come out of your study till you know you've got it together. At least you know that you've given it your best so that when you stand before the people, you would do your best to tell the people your best what God means by what he says. So when it comes to this gospel that's an exclusive gospel, it convicts, it converts, it conforms, but it also does a powerful job in counseling or to bring counsel. The exclusive truth of the gospel that by its divine power is able to counsel believers in every situation in life. There's nothing you would ever go through, nothing you would ever encounter, no question that you would ever have about any circumstance, any situation in life that the Bible has a clear, precise answer to that God wants us to know and that God wants us to live by and that God wants us to embrace. Say, so how do you know that? Well, you probably know the scripture I'm going to, 2 Peter 1.3. What does it say? God has given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Question, how much is everything? Can you get any more than everything? In fact, I'm one to look up words because I want to know what they mean. And I looked at the word everything and it means everything. It means everything. God has given us by his truth, his word, everything, everything that pertains to life and to godliness. In fact, if you would, if you turn to Psalm 19 with me just for a moment. Psalm 19. Psalm 19 in verses 7 through the end of the chapter, more particularly in verse 7 through verse 9 actually presents to us, and I put it this way, it's God's own word concerning his word. It's God's own word concerning his word. God's own testimony as to his own exclusive treatment of what he says about his own divine truth and the sufficiency of his divine truth that it indeed gives us all things pertaining to life and godliness. It is God's own testimony of God's own truth revealed in God's word. In other words, you could read here and see what God says about himself when it comes to his own word. These scriptures prove that the exclusivity of God's word alone there's your sola, sola scriptura alone is totally sufficient to counsel us in all matters of life. Miss Pat and I were talking about this very thing coming over here this afternoon. How that, that it is obvious that in many ways today you're seeing a distortion of the truth which I think clearly you would agree and we'd all agree that that is 
pretty much distorting truth, taking away from it maybe, or even adding to it, which in some ways would be considered almost a lie. It is happening today. Whether it's through the social justice movement, or Black Lives Matter, or critical race theory, or intersectionality, all of these things have their, their very roots in Marxism. They have a socialistic agenda, it's clear to see. They're anti-God, they're anti-Bible. Anybody that would have any degree of any biblical discernment that would read anything that's, that's published or anything that's on the internet will see that clearly. I never dreamed in all of my life that I would experience what I did four weeks ago. I'm, a, I'm an avid giver of blood to the Red Cross. I, I like doing that. I've done it for a long time. And I'm the kind of guy, you know, I want to get in there and out of there. So I go to the main place on Bull Street in Columbia where their main location is, the Red Cross. So they have what they call a rapid pass. And what you do is you take your iPhone, you go to the website, you fill out all the information that you need to fill and punch it and send it. It's called a rapid pass because when you get there, you don't have to go through all those details. I like that. Get it over with. Get there. Ask your name, birthday. Check your temp. Check your blood pressure. Prick your finger. Get a sample of blood. Check your hemoglobin. And then ask you a few more questions. You're ready to go to, you know, give blood. But for the first time in my life, and I'm 66 years old, this young lady looks at me, and I could tell with reservation, and ask me, what gender are you? I said, I'm a male. I'm a man. And you could tell that she was just totally disgusted with having to ask me that. But at the same time, these organizations that have embraced the whole ideology and philosophy of a critical race theory and all of this, they're made to do that or they're subject to lose their jobs. You don't see really any more personal pronouns, he or she or him, he, uh, uh, she or her or him, him or, him or, or he. It's they or them. Sad. And what is so distorted there when it comes to the truth you know what I'm about to say. You know this. Pastor Mark believes this. He preaches this. You've heard Pastor Charles share this. This is a direct attack against creation. And again, I love what John MacArthur says. I'm quoting him. He says, if you don't have a right theology of creation, the rest of the Bible doesn't come together. You've got to have a right theology of creation or it doesn't come together. What is sad is people that say they love Christ are buying into this stuff. I believe that person was born that way. Was the murderer born a murderer? Was he born an alcoholic? Was he, was he born a drug addict? Uh, was she born a prostitute? No. You're all born depraved. You're born sinful. Sin is the issue here. Depravity is the issue here. And when we begin to distort the truth, a law that has every answer that pertains to life and godliness, the church is in trouble. It's in trouble. And it should concern us all. 
Never had anybody look at me and ask me, what gender are you? Has it really come to that? Did you ever think in your wildest dreams you would ever see this happening in this nation today? No. So these scriptures here in Psalm 19 actually, again, prove the exclusivity of God's word alone, that it again is indeed sufficient to counsel us in all matters of life. Not only does it convict, converts, it conforms, but it counsels. In these three verses, 7, 8, 9, it gives us six subject titles given to Scripture, six subject characteristics given to Scripture, and six ways all of that is useful in our lives. Notice this. I'm going to go through this quickly. The first thing, verse 7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. There's actually another title that God gives his word, his exclusive truth, his exclusive gospel, his truth. He calls it the law. The law is simply God's standard for man's conduct. It's the, it's the Torah. It's the commandments. It's, it's, it's his divine teaching. But he says about this law, and what is characteristic about this title given is that it's perfect. Perfect. That is to say that the Bible is perfect. It's a word that means it's complete, it's whole, it's totally and completely sufficient. It is to say that it's so well-rounded, it's so comprehensive, that there's nothing you could ever go through in life that, again, the Word of God does not have an answer for. Isaiah 26.3 says that if we'll keep our mind stayed on Him, He'll keep us in perfect peace because we trust in Him. There's that word perfect again. The peace that Isaiah was speaking about is so complete and so comprehensive that there's nothing that is so severe or so detrimental or so difficult in your life that yet God's peace is greater and it's so complete, He's able to keep you in it no matter what you're going through. That's what it means. But He says this law, that is God's standard for man's conduct, His divine teachings, it's so complete, it's so whole, it's so totally sufficient, it's so perfect that how it is advantageous to anyone that would believe it, embrace it, is that it restores the soul. That simply means it's able to transform a person totally. Totally. The entire person, totally. Then there's a, another subject title that that God gives his word, and it's also in that same verse, he calls it the testimony. Testimony there would just simply be what God has actually disclosed about himself. <clears throat> I hear people a lot of times say, you know, I wish I could really know God. I wish I could really come to know more about God. I said, just get in the word of God. It's God's own testimony. It's God's own testimony. It's what God discloses and describes about who he is. And then he says that what is what is characteristic of this title is that it is, it is sure. That means it's totally reliable, unwavering, immovable, unmistakable, worthy to be trusted. 
simply means, church, you never have to second guess the exclusivity of the truth of God revealed in the Bible. It says testimony is sure, and then it says it makes the wise simple. That just simply means that God can take the most naive mind or a mind that does not have any real discernment and make that mind discerning and to know wisdom and to know discernment when it comes to the testimony that is completely reliable, unwavering, immovable, unmistakable, and worthy of total trust that God gives us in his word. It can take the most naive, undiscerning person and make them wise. It also says here in verse 8, it calls it another subject title, it calls it precepts. That could speak of divine principles, guidelines we are to live by. These guidelines, these divine principles that God calls his precepts are, are right. It says that, they're right. What is characteristic to the precept is that he says it's right. It means they show believers the right spiritual path, a guide that guide them into the way of true understanding. Psalm 119, 105 says that God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So the precepts, his divine principle, his guidelines, we live by, but they're right. But it says how it would benefit you is that it will cause your heart to rejoice. Is that in your heart today? Do you find yourself when you're reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God, you pray over the Word of God, you study the Word of God, does it, does it cause your heart to rejoice? I'm going to tell you something. Jeremiah was a fanatic about it. He said in John 15, 16, he says, I found the word and I found it. I ate it, and it was the rejoicing and the joy of my heart. Job said, I think he's in chapter 21, he says, I desire your word more than my necessary food. Are you battling with joy? Is there lack? I encourage you, get in the word of God. It rejoices the heart. Then he calls it here uh, in this verse 8 to the latter part, the commandment. Here's another subject title given to the Bible, the commandment. And this really speaks of the word of God being authoritative. Binding, his, his binding character that's revealed in scripture. You've heard this said before, it bears repeating. You've never heard the Ten Commandments called the Ten Suggestions. They're the commandments. But he says these commandments are pure. These commandments here are pure, it says. Emphasizing that the word is clear, is sincere. It's clear, is sincere. And it says this word that's commandment and it's clear and it's pure causes the eyes to be enlightened. That simply means it provides illumination in the most midst of what we would find to be moral issues. I really think that really the main issue in our country is not so much politics as it is moral issues. Moral issues. But the Bible provides illumination. It enlightens the eyes. 
One of the main reasons the Word of God is sufficient for all of humanity's spiritual needs is because it leaves no doubt regarding essential truth, the Bible. Then also it calls the Bible, in verse 9, the fear of the Lord. The fear, that's the title given to Scripture. It's God's manual on, on appropriately fearing and worshiping Him is really what it implies. Quoting John MacArthur again, I love what he says. The subject of worship is packed with meaning. Pastor John says to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. Powerful, isn't it? Tagging one more thought that Pastor John said, I love it. It's only to the degree that you dive into the theology of God that you can ascend to the heights of true worship. And he says this fear that's really understanding what true worship is, what it is to reverence God, what it is to extol the worth of God, what it is to truly worship God, he says it's clean. It is clean. This speaks of the utter absence of impurity. There's no impurity in the Bible. There's nothing filthy about the Bible. There's nothing dirty about the Bible. There's no defilement in the Bible or imperfection in the Bible. God's Word, the exclusive Word, the exclusive Gospel, God's Word alone is untainted by evil. It's devoid of corruption and without error of any kind. It is to say that trust the Word would never lead you down a path of error or down a road that would lead to your demise or your destruction because of it not being true. You'll never find that in the Bible. Never. And it says that the fear of the Lord that's cleaned, it says it endures forever. God's Word is a living and abiding Word of God. It never changes. It never needs to be altered. It never needs to be revised. It never needs to be changed, no matter what the generation. I know I'm quoting J. Mack a lot tonight, but I love what I heard him say recently. An inerrant Bible demands expository preaching since every word is true, every word is preached. Otherwise, you are revising God or you're editing God. And that's true. It endures forever. No changes are needed. Nothing to be altered. And the last subject title he gives it is judgments. The judgments of the Lord there in verse 9. This actually speaks of the rules and the judgments and the ordinance of God. Really, in essence, God's divine verdicts is what this implies. It implies that Scripture alone provides for us the verdicts of God Himself. And it says it's true. It's true. It means it's absolute. It's truth. And then it says... And it's righteous altogether. Scripture is comprehensive. It's altogether true. So with the power to convict, the power to convert, 
the power to conform, and the power to counsel. And I promise you, I'm ending with this. My time is gone. It's to understand that it's also a gospel that's exclusive, that has the power to conquer. The power to conquer. The exclusivity of the gospel is, is further seen in its ability to overcome the powers of Satan and sin. The invincible instrument or the invincible word of God or the very thing that defeats the forces of hell is the exclusive gospel. Did not Jesus use the truth, the exclusive truth himself when he was tempted that actually proves the power and the effectiveness of what is written? George Whitfield said, understood, he understood the supernatural power of the word of God. It is to conquer spiritual strongholds. Whitfield viewed his entire ministry as an assault on Satan and his minions. Whitfield stated that a successful season of preaching meant many inroads have been made into Satan's kingdom, many sinners convicted, and many saints much encouraged and established in their holy faith. in their holy faith. So, why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because he knew it was an exclusive gospel that had the power to convict, convert, conform, counsel, and conquer. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth, your power, your glory, your honor. It's your kingdom it's your glory forever and ever. God, I thank you for Grace Covenant Church. I thank you for Pastor Mark, his precious wife, Allie, and his precious children. Every other person here, God, every man, every woman, every husband, every wife, every child, everyone, God, I pray your blessings upon their life. I pray, God, that we will lock arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, that like Paul, our testimony would be that we're obligated, we're debtors to this gospel that's exclusively the only gospel. We're eager and we're not ashamed of this gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is hymn number 162. Wonderful, merciful Savior. Let's stand together as we sing this hymn together. <clears throat> Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Oh, you rescue the souls of men. Second verse. Counselor, comforter, keeper, Spirit, we long to embrace. You offer hope when our hearts have 
hopelessly lost the way. Oh, we've hopelessly lost the way. You are the one that we praise. You are the one we adore. You give the healing and grace. Our hearts always hunger for. Oh, our hearts always hunger for. Almighty, infinite Father, faithfully loving your own. Here in our weakness you find us falling before your throne. Oh, we're falling before your throne. You are the one that we praise. You are the one we adore. You give the healing and grace our hearts always hunger for. Oh, our hearts always hunger Amen. Thank you for the message. Praise the Lord. Thank you so much. I love how you really delivered that and how the word of God <clears throat> does all those things, conform, convicts us, conforms us, counsels us. It's, um, it was a blessing. Thank you. Uh, okay. Oh, Romans 15, 13 will be our bened benediction. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. It was a blessing to worship with you today. Uh, I, pray, I pray that the Lord used the word to convict you today, to comfort you today, to conform you today, and to counsel you today. Uh, Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a blessed week. We'll see you next time. <laughs>